this is the Angry GM, and this is the supplemental Q&A portion of the proofread aloud following the proofread aloud of the Ask Angry March 2023 mailbag that I have just finished recording for my fans on Discord and for everyone else to listen to in a recorded way. But now I'm going to turn to the Q&A thread and respond to the questions and comments. Suyun the Queasel proving they can't follow directions any better than Matthew and B and or BA or whatever the hell RA I don't even remember the stupid names. Anyway, proving they can't follow directions either says regarding the YouTube series and podcast, yes, please do. I'd be looking forward to that a lot. It'd be really great if you put that in the comments, like I asked you to once the article was posted. What is it with people and not following directions? Speaking of Ask Angry Mailbags, when, if at all, will we receive an update on your credo? I'm super curious asks Borrow Freak. Borrow Freak is um, referring to... Uh, which there was a, I, in a, in the last Ask Angry, I, somebody asked me about my GMing credo and I pointed out that there were in fact two elements on the credo, on my, on my credo. I got Queasel on the brain now. Okay. On my credo that I no longer consider to be part of my GMing credo. And I invited everybody to guess what they are and then promptly forgot to ever address it again because it was something I meant to discuss in the following live chat that I recorded. Anyway, to reveal the great big secret, even though I would like to discuss this and I will hopefully discuss this um, in the next live chat. Hopefully someone will remind me to discuss this in the next live chat. But I will say this. The two elements that are no longer on my credo are number 11. I will not take a character's freedom away unless the player agrees. And 17. If there is any ambiguity at all, a player can veto a character death. I no longer follow the death rules I used to. Death is death and players just got to suck it up. And I no longer care, um, care so much about getting permission before I take agency from a character. That was kind of a stupid rule anyway. I mean, you know. Anyway, so that's it. Those are the two answers. Um, apart from it being, uh, so Borrow Freak continues, apart from it being a genius idea, what prompted you to alter your true game mastery article plans for the next one? Oh, yeah, okay, so the, the whole True Game Mastery series, I really, this is off topic, but what the hell, nobody else is asking questions anyway, so I will mention. So when I, when I came, decided how, how I was going to tackle the whole True, Ma True Game Mastery thing, I had a vision of basically, um, you know, like, it, like the obvious idea was I wanted to write like an advanced line. It, it is what I said it was. Wow, I am babbling. Okay, it is what I said it was going to be. Okay, I wanted to write an advanced lesson on GMing that basically took people on the same journey as my book, but then took everything to the next level and also basically revised everything I've ever written on the subject. Okay, ultimately, in order to structure it, I broke it down into three main elements, running games, managing ongoing campaigns, and homebrewing, right? Building adventures and campaigns. Um... 
Uh, there was a fourth, which is hacking, which I plan to address by actually just, you know, giving out rules hacks, but you know, that aside. Okay. I then figured that I had a year, which meant I had three or four months for each of those topics. And then I broke those topics further down. And the one I'm working through now is the one on basically just running games. And I had broken that down into narration, action adjudication, encounters, and session structure. So, and then that means I've got four basic topics. So I was going to do two, two articles on each one, right? Well, it were, turns out that session structure is a good single, single topic and it sort of plays into how to manage a campaign anyway. So that's a good transition in the last one. So I don't need two articles on that. And before I launch into running encounters, which actually is not as complicated a topic as I initially thought it was going to be, um, I was looking at the way encounters start. Okay. And specifically about making how, what you tell the players, like, you know, um, like the idea of at the start of the campaign, at the start of an encounter, you have to tell the players only what they see, hear, and know, right? And give them no more information than that. And I mean, there's, there's more to the idea than that, whatever. But it started to make me realize that, um, that there was a whole thing on perception that just needed to be covered and on what you tell people, especially when it comes to like intuition, because uh, GMs will take an intuition role as telling the players, well, you believe that character or you don't believe that character. When in reality, what the GM should be telling you is it is clear from the character's facial expressions that they do not believe what they are saying or that they are, that they are hiding uh, another emotion or something like they're, they're masking their anger when they are speaking politely to you right? That's what intuition should tell you. It's not a lie detector. It should instead be suggesting to you that, you know, that the information you're getting out of the NPC's mouth does not match the information in their brain, and then leave it to the players to reason out what to do with that information and what to actually believe, especially given that if you fail an intuition check, the GM should be free to lie to you. Um, and lying to you about what your character believes is kind of wrongish, whereas lying to you about what your character perceives is a-okay. Okay, so then I had this whole thing, well, I've got to address that. And initially I was going to do a whole thing on social encounters as a completely separate thing, but then that opens up the, well, do I have to do stealth encounters? Do I have to do combat encounters? Am I going to be writing about different kinds of encounters until the end of time? Um, and then I thought, well, if I'm going to do social encounters, obviously I need to address how to handle social actions because I did sort of touch on this where I said, you know, when a player says something like, well, Mr. Guard, I think you should let us in because you may not realize it, but we're actually secret agents for the king. Wink. Um, that that is actually to be interpreted as the GM as an action declaration, which is my character tells the lies to the guard and claims to be a secret agent for the king in order to entice the guard to allow him past, right? That's the action declaration. 
and then it can be resolved by anything else, which then makes it a lot simpler for people not to get into big arguments about, well, do I roll dice if the players say things and they say them in good ways? Shouldn't, if the player says the right thing, we just assume it succeeds, which is ridiculous, okay? Because, you know, it's not like I would let a player have a free pass on an attack if they got up with a longsword and proved to me they could strike me in combat. Okay, so then once I realized all of that, I realized I need another article on action adjudication, which is right there, which is basically all of the actions that cause people pain in the ass. And then I realized, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. So that's the answer, I think. I think there's an answer in there. I think I answered the question. Long story short, um, it basically grew out of me trying to outline the next couple of articles and realizing that there was a hole I needed to cover and that I could cover that whole hole by just inserting one more article on action adjudication before I launched into encounters and then shorten up the whole session structure thing. That's it. Dragon's Vow. Is there a meaningful difference between using passive checks versus secret rolls? A meaningful difference? No. A difference GMs think is meaningful that gets their panties in a wad? Yes. And so glad you asked, Dragon's Vow. See, some GMs got it into their heads that if you're just comparing two numbers and saying, well, the players automatically succeed, this automatically see this trap because there is a character whose passive perception is high enough to spot the trap, that because the GM knows the outcome in advance, that you know, I don't even know how to finish that sentence is the problem. Okay, bad. That's, that's, that's the thought in this GM. Well, because I, if I use passive scores and then set a perception DC on the trap, then I will know in advance that the players will or won't spot this trap. And then cats and dogs living together mass hysteria, right? And the fact that there's no good way to finish that sentence tells you that it's a stupid thought, okay? There's no difference. There, it just speeds up gameplay. And in fact, the reason that the, the, they introduced it in 4E is precisely because the designers of the game looked at it and said, do we really need to be rolling die, dice every time the players walk into a room that has a hidden door or a trap just to determine if one of them sees it outright? Can't we just compare two numbers and make it quick and easy? And so they did, and it was really smart. So no, there is no difference whatsoever between using the one and the other. Um, and if you like to be surprised by the outcomes of things, then maybe you should get out from behind the GMing screen and let an adult back there. I'm not saying this is your view, Dragon's Vow. I'm just using you now to fill in for all of the GMs who make this argument that I hate. <laughs> and th thanks for taking it gamely. Okay. And now I'm going to wait for more questions. Someone keeps, the luckier GM just keeps typing and then stopping and typing and then stopping and typing and then stopping. And it makes me crazy. Just finish your thought and hit enter. Uh, I had the recording paused, which I generally do while things are, uh, while I'm waiting for something. But the recording was, is now unpaused so that everybody can hear the luckier GM finally finished typing their question. And what they finished typing was, Oh no, the pressure, don't wait for me. 
The problem is the luckier GM, there are no other questions in the feed. So if you want your question answered sometime today before time runs out, which I'm pretty sure it's going to soon, uh, then you better get that question typed or you better hope somebody else asks something quick. The luckier GM has finally, finally asked the question. It's basically, what's the difference between picking a passive DC and deciding they see it? Nothing. I mean, really, like, I, like, okay. There is sort of this sort of weird, like, theoretical idea, right? That as the GM, if you set a DC, and this is not just the, the bullshit of where it doesn't make any where it doesn't make a difference and GMs just lose their minds about things they shouldn't. There is actually a philosophical difference that is important in the mindset of GMing here. Okay. The idea is that when you are building the game, you should be building the game based on just the game that you're building, right? When you sit down and design your adventure, you are being an adventure designer and you are sitting there acting independently of everything you know about the game and you are saying, uh, this secret door is difficult to spot and the game tells me that difficult to spot things have a perception DC of 20, but because of all the moss covering the walls, I will rule that that makes this extra, extra difficult and make it a 22. Okay, and then you are doing it kind of like by this, this fair process where you're actually assessing the difficulty that it should be. Okay, if you're doing stuff on the fly at the table, then it's perfectly okay to say, you know, you've got a passive perception of 20. Most secret doors have a spot DC of 20 or a perception DC of 20. So yeah, you just spot the door. Okay, it is okay for a GM to do that on the fly too. So practically speaking, there's no difference between the two. But in terms of if you're really separating your adventure building from your game running, and I do recommend that GMs try to do that as much as possible because they, they're very, if nothing else, they are actually different skills. There is a different skill between executing a game and building a game. Okay, and they require a different thought process. So it's good to separate them in your head. That said, realistically speaking, will they result in wildly different crazy results? Probably not. Not if you're good at both. Okay. Chris Ayor asks, on the subject of passive versus secret, I did say I would, okay, maybe I didn't, but there is an article coming about perception and resolving this stuff, right? I did say that. Well, I am saying it now. So, okay. On the subject of passes versus secret roles, how much should an RPG system try to protect GMs from falling into those kind of traps? I don't know the kind of traps you're referring to, but I'm going to assume what you're referring to is GMs being dumb enough to think that it, because they know the result based on the numbers, um, then, oh, I just saw I got a message that said I have time for luckier. And then, um, so I'm assuming that Proselys is warning me that I'm out of time. Should I stop answering? Okay, this is the last question. Don't cut me off, but this is the last question. Okay, Proselys is telling me I'm good. Okay. A game designer, when they design a game for players, and I swear this is relevant to what you just asked. A game designer, when they design a game for players, is well aware of players' stupid um, 
stupid thought processes and stupid patterns of behavior that lead them to ruining the game for themselves. That is why game designers always say to themselves, you know, players will optimize the fun out of everything. Okay, that is why game designers will often cheat or program the game to cheat in ways you may not recognize to make the game experience more fun. Well, when you're designing a role-playing game system, I firmly believe that you have the same responsibility, that you yourself should know the stupid thought patterns and idiotic traps that GMs fall into themselves that become obstacles to them running the best games possible. And so to that extent, if a, a game designer uh, who's working at some game company is designing a system and is fully aware that GMs tend to fall into stupid things like that, where if they're comparing two set numbers, they believe that because there is no uncertainty in the process and it's a foregone conclusion, it is therefore somehow unfair or robs the players of their agency or some other stupid reasoning that maybe then what the, G the, the system designer should just maybe design around the problem. Now, I'm not accusing the designers of 4E of not realizing that GMs would fall into this trap, uh, you know, like eight years later in 5E, okay? Because a lot of times you just discover these thought patterns by putting stuff into the game, and then you're, wow, people are being really stupid about this. Um, and so then you learn that, hey, maybe I should have, you know, with the next edition, maybe I should design around that. But that implies that you're a professional game designer designing editions by yourself instead of by popularity contest, and that you're actually willing to redesign things that didn't work. Um, so, yeah, an RPG system should try to spackle over the holes that GMs tend to fall into in the same way that, you know, any game should be designed to prevent players from ruining it. And with that, I am going to bring this Ask Angry's question and answer portion to a close. I have officially gotten a some number of minutes warning, but it's enough of a number of minutes, or it's a few, small enough number of minutes for me not to wait for the luckier GM or anyone else to pose any more questions, because we all know what a disaster that will turn out to be. Thanks everybody for listening, and it is my fervent hope, which I am hoping fervently, which is a fun word to say, and I like to fervently say fervently whenever I can, fervent, 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 that from this point forward, Fridays will be my usual day for recording these things. Um, because certain other things in my schedule make Friday afternoons kind of a disaster for anything that takes more than an hour. Um, so I'd like to kind of get back into the schedule of doing the live Q&As, or yeah, the live proofread alouds with supplemental Q&As, and I'll probably be doing them on Fridays from here on out for posting the following Tuesday. And with that, everybody have a good weekend. I will talk to you all next week. <laughs>